All right, I guess let's get started here. All right, my name is Peter Panarchy. I am an organizer for the Mises Caucus of Oregon. I am the vice chair of the Libertarian Party of Oregon Public Policy Board. Nothing we say during this podcast should be misconstrued as the official policy of the Oregon Libertarian Party, although we have passed a resolution and expressed agreement with the Rage Against the War Machine protest. So I guess uh, I'm going to hand it over to... uh, Matt, to do. Oh well, well, thanks, uh, Peter, and and uh, it's good to be here. Um, for those in your audience who who have, haven't had a chance to hear me before or know who I am, um, I'm a political consultant, a public policy consultant, and a media consultant. Uh, I own a company called Bridging the Divide Consulting. Uh, I traditionally um, advise uh, uh, campaigns, legislative races, congressional races, um, Republicans. Uh, Greens, Libertarians, even Democrats before. I, I've consulted uh, uh, very few Democrats, but I've consulted them. Um, uh, I serve on the Public Policy Committee uh, with Peter. I, I'm just a lowly regular member, though. He, he's the vice chairman. And uh, I uh, uh, also serve on the Elections Committee for the LPO. Uh, before that, I was on the Coquille City Council, the Coquille School Board, and I had two terms as mayor of the, that great little town down in Coos County. Um, and I'll leave it at that. Thanks, Matt. Pedro, would you like to introduce yourself? Regular guest here uh, on your show. So thanks again. Uh, it was uh, really fun to be here on the first two episodes. We talk about our favorite subjects, which is censorship, uh, fringe, Julian Assange, and anti-war, and our favorite uh, kind of uh, persons uh, on, the, on the anti-war rally, or our favorite historical Americans like Eugene Debs. So I'm looking for another great talk. From the menu, I think you mentioned Seymour, Seymour Hirsch, with, uh, which is a legendary journalist. So I'm, I intend to speak a bit about that later, so that, that's all I have to say for now. I am glad you said that because I really wanted to read his Substack article before this, but I was too busy on the outline, so I will be very happy for you to get into that. So if you can't tell um, by the title, uh, this is Foreign, Foreign Policy Fridays, Episode 4, Word of the Wise, if you have a call-in show. If you have technical difficulties and your show has to end and you have to restart, you have to make a new room. Otherwise, you'll lose your podcast. So that's why you can't find episode three anymore. So sorry about that. Uh, we did a great episode about the Rage Against the War Machine protest. Uh, we'll probably do another thing to talk about that next Friday, uh, as I will be in Seattle on February 19 at the event happening there. Uh, I'll be speaking probably a lot about uh, the subject we're talking about today in general. So all right, to get into the material here. The common theme in this series is that we should realize that nearly every actor on both sides of every major conflict is a state. States are evil organizations that seek to enrich their own wealth and power with no regard for the cannon fodder that fight their wars. So we will begin, as always, with a simple quote. On June 28, 1914, a telegram was sent from British warship King George V to Kaiser Wilhelm II as the Germans sailed away from a joint military celebration in Kiel, Germany. The Kaiser was sailing towards Vienna to attend the funeral of the recently assassinated Archduke Franz Ferdinand of Austria-Hungary. That telegram said, friends today, friends in the future, friends forever. These men were obviously aware the fact that their foreign secretary of England had already secretly committed them to war against Germany in the event that war broke out between Germany and France. All right, so the agenda. We're going to quickly recap episodes one and two, and we're going to get into episode three, which is the queer and intermingled relationship between the German and English royal families and the catalysts of their end of the conflict outside the secret Franco-English secret alliance that we talked about uh, last episode. So a brief recap of the story so far. On episode one, we talked about generally the parallels between World War I and the Ukraine-Russia conflict we see today. Uh, We were all taught in middle school that entangling alliances caused a local conflict in Eastern Europe to devolve into a world war that led to approximately 40 million casualties, including 20 million dead. 
Yet we are supposed to ignore the fact that this is all happening again. World leaders maintain that the conflict can remain localized, despite the fact that the battle zone is surrounded by NATO and Russian allies. And this conflict could, and already nearly has, spill over at any moment. The stakes of this are so much higher than ever before. On episode two, we talked about the Franco-Prussian War of 1870 and how megalomaniac personalities and perceived threats resulted in about a million casualties. All right. Any comments on uh, the recap? If anyone wants to touch on anything, Matt, you weren't here for the first two parts, so I, I would just say that it. I mean, for those who don't know and study World War One, obviously it's popular now to say that this is the the prelude, the precursor to World War Two. But uh, you know, and I think Pat Buchanan's book, uh, Hitler, Churchill, and the Unnecessary War. Uh, is a hallmark in, in study uh, of the First World War because I think a lot of people don't understand we're still feeling the effects of that today. And we are playing out, the United States and NATO are playing out the same moralistic, foolhardy, self-dealing kind of policy that destroyed the British Empire and and eventually would destroy the... Um, the uh, the the Austro-Hungarian uh, well not, excuse me um, would destroy uh, numerous other empires. Sorry, I got distracted there. The light blinked on and off. I didn't know if I had a mistake there with my audio. But there, there are great parallels between the what uh, the foolhardy policies of the uh, Allies in World War One and where we're at today with NATO. And and so I'm looking forward to digging into that. And it sounds like you covered a lot of good ground before. Yeah, I appreciate that. I think a lot of people try to compare what's going on now to World War II, but I think World War I is the more apt comparison for for many reasons. Um, all right, I guess let's just get into the episode three proper, English-German relations. So conspiracies aside, uh, we all know that the European royal families were tight, but this is a direct familiar relationship. So the Kaiser of Germany, the time of the world conflict, was the eldest grandson of Queen Victoria. Both of them were from House Hanover, which is a house that actually originally came from Germany. I'm not going to go into that tangled web. Uh, I tried to, <laughs> to research the history of House Hanover and how they came to rule England. But let's just say this family ruled England, Germany, and Ireland at various times in actual and more ceremonious roles. This was a rabbit hole. I didn't really feel like pertained to the story at large. But thus to say, in 1901, Queen Victoria of England would die. And as Matt mentioned, we are heavily quoting uh, Buchanan's uh, uh, Churchill, Hitler, and the Unnecessary War here, among other sources. But this is directly from Buchanan. Kaiser Wilhelm II had rushed to her bedside, being Queen Victoria, as she sank towards death and softly passed away in my arms. I guess this is uh, Wilhelm. He had marched in the queen's funeral procession. The new king, Edward VII, was deeply moved. As he wrote his sister, Empress Frederick, the Kaiser's mother, who had been too ill to uh, travel to the funeral, William's touching and simple demeanor up to the last will never be forgotten by me or anyone. It was indeed a sincere pleasure for me to confer upon him the rank of field marshal in my army. And then at the luncheon for the new king, Edward, the Kaiser rose to declare, I believe these two Teutonic nations will, bit by bit, learn to know each other better and will stand together to help in keeping the peace of the world. We ought to form an Anglo-Germanic alliance. You keep the seas while we will be responsible for the land. With such an alliance, not a mouse could stir in Europe without our permission. This never turned out to be, though. German and English statesmen never seemed to want it to happen. Both countries had the respective colonial and military forces that kept them from forming any meaningful dialogue towards Entente. There doesn't seem to be a direct parallel here to today, but it is odd how this interfamilial dispute wasn't able to be prevented. If anything, this goes again to the egos of the megalomaniacs that are in charge of states that shouldn't have the power that they do. Uh, any comment here from the hosts or anyone here in the queue? I would just say that it, it is amazing uh, if you look at the relationship with Edward and Wilhelm that the, the the mutual contempt, disdain, because when we look at Victoria's funeral, because Wilhelm, from my recollection, 
was the favorite grandson of Victoria. Um, and and uh, she held him in very, very high regard. Uh, and a lot of his education was done in Britain. Uh, and, and they were all very close. Uh, but the generational gap between Edward and Wilhelm and the fact that Germany was an emergent power that could actually match the British in many ways. Maybe not at the sea, but they would definitely trump them on the land in a, in a direct military confrontation. And so you have the fact that Germany and Italy also are late to the nationhood game. And they're trying to get in on the spoils of uh, colonization, the scramble for Africa. They're trying to basically use all the tricks that the great powers use to enrich themselves and become powers. And just by virtue of doing this and trying to use the same rules, and this is where I would think that there are parallels between World War I and today uh, in this regard, they try and use the same system that the other existing powers already have. And then they're condemned for it and economic pressures uh, and political forces unify to push for confrontation because they're threatened by that emergent power. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think that also relates to what's going on with uh, the United States and China, I guess on the other side of that area, just like the, the desire to dominate, um, I guess the, the South China Sea, and just like no one can have supremacy, whereas it makes way more sense to, just for people to have trade routes and one power to not like dominate the other. Looks like I have a caller here in the Dickey. Uh, go ahead, Dickey. Um, I'm sorry we got here a little late. Is there is there a specific topic? I was I was just I figured I'd stay in queue until I learned something. What's going on? Oh, no worries. Um, you don't have to comment right now if you don't want to. Uh, we were talking about the familiar familial relationship between the German and English royal families, both being from a uh, house Hanover. And yeah, the uh, description there is talking, but generally we're talking about uh, Germany and England uh, pre-World War One and kind of like what happened and how that relates to the Russia-Ukraine conflict. No worries. Well, uh, we can come back definitely there later. Um, okay. Well, I guess if no other comments, we're going to move on to the high seas fleet, which I think is probably the, the other major sticking point between Germany and England at the time. So in 1900, uh, Germany made the fateful decision that it needed a navy to protect the North Sea and Baltic coasts. Uh, it would protect the trade that many in Germany required for basic supplies against the growing strength of the, of the French and Russian fleets. By 1901, the Franco-Russian alliance was spending three times what Germany was on their fleet. So according to Admiral Tippetts of Germany, which is the leading uh, naval officer of Germany at that time, it served another purpose, uh, to deter Britain from interfering with German dealings with the Franco-Russian alliance. The thought was England would fear direct conflict because it would weaken the Royal Navy in the event that they fought each other. Uh, however, uh, this would severely backfire. Uh, to quote the Kaiser on Britain's haughty attitude towards Germany, uh, nothing will change until we are strong enough on the seas that we become allies. Uh, Britain never wanted to be allies, though. Uh, they saw Germany as a threat to their colonial empire. Um, and I will pause here for any comments. Uh, <clears throat> Sorry, I'm having some mic problem. I'll, I'll, I'll come back to You sounded good, Matt. Yeah, you sound good to me, Matt. Well, I wanted to just retouch on on a point I was making about emergent powers and and particularly about using the rules that are good for the goose but apparently not good for the gander and applying it to the situation we're at now. Um, in so much as when I say the rules that were used by the existing powers, in this instance, Britain, France uh, and, and others to try and build colonies in Africa and expand their military presence across the globe and naval presence. Um, in this instance, we had a human rights situation in the East Ukraine and the Donbas, where under every definition the UN uses for genocide, the, the Zelensky regime, the, the Maidan regime in Kiev, uh, was following what is the definition of a genocide, which was the basis for our involvement 
in Kosovo uh, and the basis for our involvement in Yugoslavia uh, 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 before that even. Uh, and so it's fascinating to me. It's fascinating to me because we use the claim of right to protect. That was what Tony Blair and Bill Clinton utilized when they, when they violated the sovereignty of Yugoslavia. And NATO still protects a secessionist, uh, ethnically motivated regime in Kosovo uh, to this day. Uh, at great expense to the American taxpayer and great frustration of the people of Serbia and Kosovo. But I was going to say, they used right to protect, even though uh, there was no basis for that under the law. And so what did Putin invoke when he invaded Ukraine to, you know, stop the genocide in the Donbass? Right to protect. It's very similar. It is very similar. And so I'm not necessarily even defending the Russians, just as I'm not defending the central powers in World War One. It's just... The hypocrisy here stinks to high heaven. And that's that's the point I was trying to convey. I think that's accurate. And I guess to touch back on that, to close that loop, the Americans had no right to intervene in Kosovo. I mean, uh, it just goes back to everyone tries to use an excuse for interfering in other people's affairs. And I don't know how many people I've had this argument with on Twitter lately, but like, oh, it's a, it's a NAP violation if the Americans don't intervene to like do something about the Russia-Ukraine conflict. It's like if a NAP violation occurs like 3,000 miles away, like how does it, obli- how does it obligate uh, the Americans to like use stolen money from the taxpayers to keep this war going? But all right. Um, any other thoughts on the high seas fleet? Uh, I guess before we move on to the last piece I wanted to touch on in regards to the Germany, England, and then we'll probably just jump into Russia, Ukraine proper. Okay. Well, the last thing I wanted to talk about was uh, just really at the right before the war started, right after that thing I talked about at the beginning, how there was that like joint military celebration and like summer of 1914 where it seemed like the germans and the english were on really good terms kind of just hanging out and then the assassination of uh, franz ferdinand happened and we'll get into the rest of this in another episode but the devolution of basically austria hungary versus serbia and then the mobilization of russia but uh, england would be would realize um so i guess the last piece i want to say is england would realize that uh or sorry, Germany would realize that England planned to enter the war. This became obvious by the British posturing after Russia began to mobilize in response to the Austria-Hungary attack on Serbia. Um, so the Kaiser would sum it up as thus, the world will be engulfed in the most terrible of wars, the ultimate aim of which is the ruin of Germany, England, France, and Russia have conspired for our annihilation. That is the naked truth of the situation, which has slowly but surely been created by Edward VII. The encirclement of Germany is at last an accomplished fact. We have run our heads into the noose. The dead Edward is stronger than the living. And this is really not to excuse like Germany from any of the like terrible things that they have done up to this point. Like they definitely share some of the responsibility, but it seems like this freight train couldn't be stopped at this point. Like militaristic forces inside Germany and England had already put the brakes on too late, if at all. And this really just reminds me from the quote I read in the first episode that I want to just read one more time, um, which was Winston Churchill, that bastard who deserves his own episode. As I've said, he's probably the most overrated man of the 20th century. But uh, back when he was, I guess, smart, I guess he said that A European war can only end in the ruin of the vanquished and a scarcely less fateful commercial dislocation and exhaustion of the conquerors. Democracy is more vindictive than cabinets. The wars of the peoples are more terrible than the wars of kings. So that was early before he came in support of this. But all right, I guess that's all I have to say on uh, Germany, England. There's probably more to be said, but I think we covered it pretty well. Any last thoughts before we move on to, I guess, new developments in the Ukraine-Russia conflict? One thing, one thing to consider here, and and this again sort of applies to the the, the Russo-Ukraine conflict, which is the British uh, undoubtedly their foreign policy had to be influenced by the great uh, rapprochement with the United States that they'd worked, you know, forty years to, to rebuild 
that had really started to firm up after the Spanish-American War and really got got moving with some momentum after the Boxer Rebellion where U.S. troops and British troops mobilized together to put down uh, the Chinese trying to actually take back their country. And, and, and so I, I was going to say the British were already pretty darn confident, one, that they had the breadbasket of America and the manufacturing power behind them to go into a military conflict that they thought they could win. And so sort of like what happened with Ukraine, uh, with NATO, it became a bad faith negotiation. It was bad faith diplomacy. It was all planned. That, you know, you can't negotiate peace in good faith when you're spending twice the time preparing for war. And, and I think the United States becoming an ally again uh, of the British uh, after the whole 19th century really being pretty frosty uh, is the real hallmark here that gave the really gave the signal to the to to the uh, British to push for war. And I think that was a major determination in why the liberal government, which had been anti-war, uh, decided to sell out for some short term political and economic gain. Yeah, we talked about that a little bit uh, last uh, episode of this series, just how uh, Edward Gray and a small member of the the British government, like against the the parliament didn't know, like the prime minister didn't know. They had signed all these secret deals with the, with the French and they already had committed England to war against Germany. And that really just came like in the last uh, couple months of the war. Everyone kind of realized that, oh, I guess this is happening now. We don't really have a choice, but I guess that goes into Belgian neutrality, which I think next episode we're going to do uh, Russia, Germany. And then after that, we're going to do what I would call the myth of German militarism and I guess the myth of Belgian neutrality. But all right, um, I think we'll get into developments on uh, Russia, Ukraine. So uh, Seymour Hirsch, uh, famous journalist, most known for uh, his work on the My Lai massacre in Vietnam, uh, the Abu Ghraib torture that happened during the war on, tra- war on terror. A bunch of other things uh, wrote a really interesting Substack article, which I did not read, but Pedro did um, on the Nord Stream attack. Uh, this attack never really made sense to me from the beginning that everyone blamed Russia for it. I mean, it was their pipeline. Didn't really understand. There's also a lot of weird tweets coming out from Poland. I guess the Polish prime, like a Polish member of parliament tweeted something like, thank you, USA. And I mean, the Biden government had been threatening the pipeline overtly, like uh, months before the war even happened. So I'm going to turn it over to Pedro to talk about uh, Seymour Hirsch and I guess his article. Thank you, uh, Peter. So, uh, Seymour Hirsch, uh, so I didn't prepare very much for this uh, show, so I'm going to try to more or less browse the Wikipedia entry of Seymour Hirsch and also read a couple of things that people said on Twitter. And uh, so let's go for, see how it goes. Uh, So, uh, Seymour Hirsch is uh, is described as an American investigative journalist and political writer. Uh, He was born in Chicago, actually, uh, and uh, spent the early years of journalism in Chicago. And uh, in 1969, uh, there was report. There was the Vietnam War in 1969, of course, and he got some. He did some reporting on the Vietnam War, uh, basically exposing uh, some war crimes. Uh, so, of course, he got. Uh, so that was a, kind of his explosive revelation about war crimes. Uh, Later on his life, he, he was basically all over the place uh, regarding uh, issues in foreign policy, for example, in the Iraq war, uh, and etc. on the Syrian civil war also. Actually, uh, so I follow uh, some people in the journalists in that they have a website called the Gray Zone News with Max Blumenthal and Harlan Mate. And uh, they have a show every Friday afternoon, and uh, today's show was exactly about Simon Hirsch and uh, his subjects he covered. He covered Aaron Mate is a, b- a big expert on the on the Syrian civil war. He alleges that the, there was no really uh, gas attacks. Uh, 
So they talk about that, and uh, so uh, so. The, but uh, the point right now is, uh, I don't know if everybody knows, but there is a war in Europe, kind of a proxy war, and uh, a couple of last year the the pipeline that uh, con connects uh, Germany to Russia. Uh, called the North Stream blew up and kind of nobody knows uh, who did it. So uh, they, they were pointing fingers at the Russians. The, the investigation that the, the kind of a mystery. So uh, so the, so what, what happened is Simon Hirsch alleges that the the U.S. government did it, and uh, Aaron Mate and Max Wuventhal were just talking about that. I follow like uh, people with more. If you want to know, just just follow uh, is what he said. So, uh, but yeah, that that's basically what what I wanted to say. But uh, is is a legend? It's a legend, basically. Summerhurst is a legend, and uh, is Wikipedia? Yeah, th that's basically what I, I wanted to say, Peter. Uh, that's all. Thanks for that, Pedro. Uh, go ahead, Matt. You had something there. Well, I was going to say that you know. The idea that Russia would ever blow up its own multi-billion dollar pipeline that gave it massive political leverage over Europe uh, and was really its trump card going into the winter to push for a negotiated settlement. The bombing of that, uh, as we know from Seymour Hersh's article, and I, I, I fully trust uh, the veracity of that article. Seymour Hersh has a very, very good record uh, on, on breaking these kind of stories. Um, and I, I know right now what kind of mainstream media coverage there is on this story, which is very little, shamefully so. Um, the others will be made of derision uh, or, or calling somebody a conspiracy theorist, which is completely untrue. Uh, Seymour Hirsch is a reputable, credible journalist, and frankly, he ought to get the Pulitzer for this article. The article, which is so thoroughly documented, it, it, it is anybody who hasn't read it, um, somebody should put a link up there in the uh, uh, in the chat here. And actually, I'm going to copy and paste it now. Um, um, but uh, everybody should read this. It's a free Substack article, um, and and it is just outstanding. Uh, I would say also it, it that the bombs were planted before Russia even invaded, we know now, which is, again, a negotiation in bad faith. One of the things we tried the Nazis for at Nuremberg was aggressive war making the idea of negotiating treaties or negotiate attempting to negotiate, knowing that it was really to buy time for violence and, and aggression, uh, and we've seen that admission from the Ukrainians uh, and the Germans and the French that Minsk too was a big fraud, because one of the reasons that gives the Russians very strong legal footing to intervene in Ukraine is the fact that Minsk too has been completely ignored. Uh, and so I, I would just say that Seymour Hirsch outlines it all. I encourage everybody to read the article. Uh, look at it yourself. But I haven't seen reporting that good on something so controversial since Abu Ghraib. So I think Seymour Hirsch deserves a uh, an attaboy, uh, if that's the right term, because he shows, even at this point in his long career, uh, an old school journalist can still ferret out the facts. And so I, I encourage everyone. Yes, I agree. The article is very detailed. So he obviously has sources uh, in the military, uh, obviously, because it just reports about the war. I just want to add, so on Twitter, people are saying, some people are saying that he's not a good journalist. And uh, there was some people that said, oh, it's possible that what he said is correct, but I don't trust a single source article from anyone, let alone this guy. So Kevin Gostola, which is a Chicago-based journalist, replied, yeah, I'm just going to read what Kevin said, because Kevin had a show here, and I, I talk to him quite often. So Kevin said, yeah, why trust a journalist who exposed the My Lai massacre, secret to U.S. military bombings in Cambodia, and the Abigail scandal, and has won a so uh, Simon Hirsch has won the Pulitzer Prize, George Orwell Award, and the Polk Award five times. I mean, it's just a silly blog post anyway. So that's what Kevin said, and I kind of agree with him. So, And, uh, yeah, that's all I, I wanted to have to say for now. 
Yeah, I guess maybe we could surmise a little bit on like if this is true, like what would this really mean, you know? Like, is, is anyone going to do anything about this? Like, you'd think Germany would be pretty upset about it. So they've been strong-armed into sending these Leopard 2 tanks and these revamped Leopard 1s. And they've really, like, paid the price, I think, economically in a lot of cases for this war. And to really know that, I guess, the Americans were behind this attack, I, I wonder how the Germans are going to feel about it. But, Dickie, if you had uh, something, go ahead. Well, I have uh, hypothesized that... Uh... It's a possible that Germany was one of the uh, objectives of the United States all along because they were the, the biggest beneficiary of uh, the Russian natural gas coming from Nord Stream 1 and then Nord Stream 2. Nord Stream 2 never really got a chance to take off. One thing, one thing I would add, uh, Peter, is that, you know, we see that footage of Victoria Newland, the, the just hideous, hideous, vile uh, woman who, who worked in the Obama administration and then now in the Biden administration, the point person on uh, the Ukrainian uh, fascist government. And uh, she said most recently, uh, very proudly, uh, first she said it was going to be at the just a hunk of scrap at the bottom of the ocean, and of course, Joe Biden said the same thing after, now we know from the Hirsch piece, the bombs were already planted. Again, this is unbelievable. We planted those bombs before the Russians even crossed the Ukrainian border. And I was going to say Victoria Newland in speaking uh, before uh, a Senate Oversight Committee uh, that Ted Cruz is a member of just recently said, and I know you'll be glad to hear, Senator, you know, we're very proud of that. And there's a reason why she said that. There was a signal to the Republicans, and Ted Cruz is one of the biggest supporters of the Ukraine. Uh, there's a reason why. Uh, it's because of the profits that will be pushed towards big oil and natural gas uh, that are at least headquartered in his state and are big campaign contributors of his. And so that's one of the other driving issues here. Trump and Obama steamed and stewed over that those pipelines. They hated it. They wanted it gone. This gave them the pretext to do it so American uh, special interests could make lots and lots and lots of money. And they are not afraid to fight to the last Ukrainian to do that. Very well put there, Matt. And I think this really goes back to, I guess, the overall view that I think you and I and definitely everybody in the Oregon Mises caucus feels that this war was planned like a long time ago. I mean, maybe even as far back as 1991, there was going to be an inevitable showdown between the new Russian Federation and NATO when it was on NATO's terms. Like, I think that obviously like Russia's invasion is horrible and brutal and like not, not justified, but it does feel like the Russian bear was kind of backed into a corner and it bought back at some point. But it, it just by the way that all this has played out, the amount of money that the Americans are making, their refusal to listen to any demands, the fact that Anthony Blinken is the worst secretary of state in American history at his job, I guess, which would seemingly be to end this conflict, to try to find some form of negotiated peace. There's just there's no interest in it. And I mean, we know that there was a peace treaty back in March of like weeks after the war began that was sabotaged by Boris Johnson. I mean, this was confirmed by Boris Johnson. He bragged about it. Uh, Zelensky admitted it in Ukrainian papers. And we just just last week, we had confirmation from former Israeli uh, Prime Minister Bennett that, yeah, this was the plan. Like, they, they don't want peace. They want um, Russia to bleed, no matter how many Ukrainians die. Well, could it possibly be, and since you are Mrs. Institute, and uh, that we're talking about interests like economic interests. So do the United States have the right um, to circumvent the Russian economy for their own interest? Well, uh, Peter, uh, I'll just butt in on that. I, I would say we haven't circumvented the Russian economy. Their economy is stronger than ours in every meaningful uh, way you can assess an economy. Um, their standard of living uh, has not gone down. Their currency is stronger. 
their wages are on the up, their inflation is down, they are rich in natural resources and manufacturing uh, uh, infrastructure. Do you think? And they're allied, and they're allied with China, I'm not which offsets everything else. I'm not, I'm not getting at the argument of whether it was successful or not. I'm just saying the justification is is that it was in the U.S. interest to make sure that the Soviet or well Soviet Union listened to me using <laughs> Cold War rhetoric. <laughs> anyway, and uh, I'm just saying that it, if it's their interest to for economic supremacy, and if that's ultimately what we're doing is making money. I think the U.S. is well within their uh, purview to uh, go ahead and eliminate their competitor from the board, correct? Well, what if eliminating your competitor starts a nuclear war that kills every citizen in the world or makes it pretty much uninhabitable? Oh, everybody goes to that argument, Matt. Nobody's... Uh, well, uh, you know, everybody's afraid of doomsday or says doomsday oh, ain't coming until Matt. it comes. They're, just, that's, they're not going to kill each other. Well, it's let me just say this. Uh, what what was your opinion on the Cuban Missile Crisis? Do you believe that the the Russians should have put nukes in Cuba? Now, what are you talking about? I'm talking well, about think, economic supremacy. Well, no, no, no. Your economic supremacy, though, is the same thing that the Russians did Whoa. when they tried to put... Please, please, let me finish, Dickie. Whoa. Uh, 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 because, really, we want to... If NATO expansion comes to the Russian border, it's the equivalent of putting hostile nuclear weapons in Mexico against us by the Chinese, how would we react, I would ask, if the Chinese wanted to ally with Mexico and put nuclear missiles 20 minutes, that's not even 20 minutes, it'd probably be five minutes from Mexico, uh, from hitting our capital? I mean, th th this is what the but Russians had to But that didn't happen because the U.S. economic supremacy and self-interest was able to prevail. Actually, it didn't prevail. As a matter of fact, we got, we got worse on the deal because... We, we scuttled our Atlas missiles out of Turkey uh, while the Russians took a, a handful of missiles out of Cuba. We took out about 45. They took out about 10. And, and so really, actually, the PR campaign, because of the limits of news and technology at the time, convinced the people of our country that this was some big victory. In the end, and, and, and frankly, it, that, 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 that translated to the Soviets because it, it destroyed what was left of Khrushchev's credibility. But yeah. it's an act of aggression to create perception. a military alliance on somebody else's border but and Matt, put nuclear weapons there. Everything? Is it perception everything, Matt? As long as you have the people believing. I don't believe in relative truth. I believe there, there's real truth. And, and I, think, I, think it's, I think it's very aggressive to put nuclear weapons on somebody's border. But if you want economic supremacy, you've got to. Is that really true? Is that true? Because the British tried these same tactics in the technology of the day uh, against Germany. They destroyed their empire. Yeah, I, I just feel like we're going back and forth on the same thing here. And I just kind of want to make a point that I think is getting lost here. Um, the economic interest, I guess, in this case would be the military industrial complex. Like the people of America are not served by these uh, these war companies and these many weapons manufacturers making this money off of Ukraine, this conflict, and they definitely weren't served back in World War One. And we are repeating exactly the same mistakes that led to World War One, thinking that, oh, we can just gain a little bit here. We can gain a little bit there. It's not going to escalate. This is going to be a localized conflict. We're going to get just what we want, and then we're going to get out. But that never happens in cases like this. Didn't happen in World War One didn't happen in World War II. So you're just, I don't know, you're completely wrong about this, Dickie. I don't know if you're saying this as a, as a devil's advocate, but if you truly think that the American people are benefiting from $150 billion of our stolen taxpayer dollars benefiting this proxy war, then I just, I don't know what planet you're living on because like every single person is feeling the inflation coming from this and like all the other all the blood and treasure that's been spent over the last 30 years maintaining the evil American empire. And I just, I just can't see how you see any benefit in this. And I'll give you a chance to respond here, but I just feel like it was going, the back and forth is getting kind of weird. All I can say is, man, you summed up. I feel ridiculous. I should have never said anything.
Hey, Dickie, man, the first rule I have, if you're in a minority position, and still the majority of Americans are starting to wake up to this Ukrainian thing, I, uh, yeah, it, it yeah. is that we not mock the converted. Uh, uh, if, if you if you want to switch your opinion to where, where we're at, yeah, I, I'm, I being, I'm being facetious. I'm sorry. You guys, I'm sorry. I, I had an agenda, and I, you guys exposed it. Well, happy to have you on. Just uh, please let the other person talk before you uh, interrupt them there. Uh, go ahead, Matt, and finish your thought. No, no, I finished my thought. I'll let you move us on. Okay. Well, the only other thing I wanted to talk about here, and uh, Pablo, are you still with us? Because uh, you're the only person that really understands this. I tried to do some research on um, everything that's come out about the Mossad leak and how um, Samantha Black has been reporting that the true casualty numbers coming out of the conflict are, are far higher than Ukraine. Supposedly, there's a Turkish newspaper that has these details, but I haven't been able to find it. And doesn't look like Pablo's still here, so maybe we'll cover that next week if I can get Pablo on. But, uh, I can address here. that a little bit uh, if you'd like. Oh, go ahead, Matt. And then, and then I'll take you, Gregor. The, the Mossad, the Mossad, are, uh, the Mossad report said that there are 150,000 dead Ukrainian soldiers, far, far out of alignment with the numbers being pushed by the propaganda ministry in Kiev. Uh, and uh, what's amazing is the government there will not acknowledge the disappearing men. It's almost like Pinochet's Chile, where they uh, just pretended like people disappeared and they had nothing to do with it. All these men apparently just disappeared. Women, children, looking for husbands, mothers, looking for their sons, sisters, looking for their brothers. They uh, are continually told that this, uh, they, they, their, their, their relatives didn't die in combat. And yet they can't find them. They can't find a trace, not a single trace. The Israeli Mossad is one of the most effective, whether you agree with the things they do or not, one of the most effective intelligence gathering agencies in the world. And I don't believe any Mossad officer would put their reputation or credibility on the line in that kind of a report, putting those kind of casualty numbers without them being at least based more firmly in reality than Kiev's nonsensically low numbers. But but uh, the Mossad report shows that the country is on the verge of collapse, really, and the war effort is on the verge of collapse. Once the lines break, it's going to be all through the lowlands, and 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 the, the 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 fields and the plains, and then it's going to hit eastern Ukraine where the the major cities are for the Maidan regime. Yeah, I think you're right there, and we're in a weird position, right? Because the Mossad is uh, I don't know I think a lot of us here would say is an evil organization, not unlike the CIA, and not a fan of Israel's foreign policy. Though I know a lot of uh, people. Uh, some of the best Jewish voices out there, the loudest people criticizing um, Israeli foreign policy, especially people like Dave Smith and uh, Sheldon Richmond and people like that. So um, anyways, uh, I'm going to take Gregor and go ahead. Hey, guys, love what you're doing. Um, been reading the book sort of along with you um, and, you know, trying to get an idea of, of you know, so I'm up on what's going on. All right, just, just by Gregor, we are talking about uh, Churchill, Hitler, and the Unnecessary War by Pat Buchanan. Great book, uh, huge source material for this podcast. Yeah, and yeah, so I picked up my Audible copy for free and um, managed to, uh, you know, I've been going through it, and it's been it's been a really fascinating study. But bringing it up to the current conflict, you know. I'm not, I'm not a peacenik, okay? I'm not a person that thinks that war is never going to happen or there is any way to completely avoid it. I, I sadly believe that no matter what happens, somebody else wants your stuff and you're going to have to figure out a way to defend it. Do I think the U.S. is correct in, in being involved in this? By no means. Um, and it's going to end badly for us no matter what. I have been reading some reports that it looks like our Patriot system actually has taken down one of their SU-37Ss, um, which means now, again, American weapons are directly tied to the destruction of Russian property. And I don't know how much longer Russia is going to feel obligated to not, well, 
uh, attack the supply lines for Ukraine. And who knows where that could go? Um, you know, this is an absolutely a stupid conflict. And as you pointed out with that last bit, the information we're getting is bad. It's just wrong. It's, it's, you know, it's just not accurate at all. And we really need to figure out a way to get out of there. Um, and I don't even, I don't even know if this point of gracefully is an option. Um, you know, I would have thought that a negotiated peace where Russia got us land bridge and Ukraine got to keep the rest of it would have been a good idea, but I don't even know if that can happen now. I don't think Russia's going to bother stopping because they don't have to, even though they're struggling too. I mean, they're using relatively untrained soldiers and, um, you know, they're, they're, the conflict hasn't gone anywhere near as well as they had hoped. Um, but, uh, I don't know. It's just, it is scary. I'm all over avoiding nuclear war. And I really think we have to figure out a way to pull out. And I don't even, like I said, I don't even mean gracefully. Let's just get out of there. Well said, Gregor. Yeah, I, I, it is, it sucks, right? Because this should have ended, it should have ended before it even started, right? But then secondly, it should have ended back in March. And now it just needs to end. Like, I don't know how many people that I argue with on Twitter lately. There's like, well, Russia should just leave. Like, I don't know what kind of alternative reality you live in where the last decade never happened, but now Russia demands a buffer zone between it and NATO, and it's not going to stop until it gets there. And these people that think the Ukraine is going to get Crimea back, like, I wish the people of Ukraine the best. I really feel bad for them that they've been used as a pawn in this proxy war between NATO and Russia, but sucks for them. But honestly, I think the best solution here is just to have a ceasefire and have like, I don't believe in democracy. I'm an anarchist, but if you're going to have something, maybe at least have like some referendums that are internationally sanctioned and let the people in the Donbass and Zaporizhia and those areas decide if they want to be independent or which country they want to be a part of. And then let's, let's stop shooting each other. Well, I know, I know Russia would tell you that they've already done that back in 2014. Um, but I'm also kind of like not not uh, impressed with their quality of their elective procedures. Um, but yes, absolutely. And people forget that Russia is literally fighting for their one warm water port, the one port that they can actually leave from year round. Um, you know, it's located in that region. Um, it is, you know, yes, it was surrounded by Ukraine, but it was Russian territory and they were connecting those things. That's the whole point of this. So again, this was in the making since we're, since, you know, since the breakup of the Soviet Union um, back in 92, this was set in motion as something that was going to happen no matter what. Um, and we should have figured out a way to negotiate it away without having, and there's going to be when the tally is counted eventually, hopefully counted, we are going to be in the hundreds of thousands dead. And for what? I don't, I don't see. The profit motive. And I'm not some pinko commie. But the fact of the matter is that folks with lots and lots and lots of money, we hear about Putin's oligarchs. Let's look at American oligarchs for a second and how they use their power to suppress the rights and liberties of Americans. Uh, I would also say that I don't believe the Russians have underperformed in this war. I think the Russians miscalculated. And, and one thing, uh, Bill Maher, I don't agree with him on a lot, but uh, I think he made a great point last week on his show, which is every Russian war at the first is pretty awful. It, it doesn't work well for the Russians for about the first year. And then they make the decisions to shore up their army. They use their overwhelming manpower, resources, and manufacturing uh, infrastructure to overwhelm the enemy. And that's what's going to happen here. By the time it's all over, you'll have a sliver of a Ukraine left on the map because the Russians don't want the whole thing. As you said, Gregor, they, 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 they want a buffer zone. And, and the fact of the matter is be, uh, they're justified in wanting a buffer zone because NATO has shown it doesn't operate in good faith. It violated the pledge we made uh, when, when uh, Russia allowed for the unif reunification of Germany. And we violated the pledge when we intervened in Yugoslavia and Kosovo. And we have routinely shown that NATO as a defensive organization is a joke. It's an offensive organization. 
And, and, and so I would say the Russians came into this hoping for a quick negotiated settlement, which they almost had, uh, as Peter pointed out, uh, if it wasn't for Boris Johnson, who was the prime minister from Lockheed Martin. Um, and so uh, the Russians figured they're beating them on the battlefield, 50,000 men against a million almost. And they still were winning. They finally got pushed back after the supply lines. But as you pointed out, Gregor, I think the interests, uh, the, the, the planners in NATO and the Biden administration are desperate and hoping, just like Woodrow Wilson was, to wrap it all back around the World War I scenario, that they could supply lethal aid to a belligerent party that was already blockading the other party's ports and then not be uh, attacked as if they were a co-belligerent. I think NATO is hoping that Russia will bomb the supply lines. Uh, Vladimir Putin is aware and his, and his inner circle is aware. It's going to cost a lot. And it's going to take some time. But at this point, there's no withdrawal from the Donbass. Those are their fellow countrymen uh, that were handed over to Ukraine, frankly, because the Soviet Union collapsed and because Khrushchev uh, was, uh, was uh, a Ukrainian by birth and wanted to hand it over to his own province. But uh, this is very complicated. I would say the Russians are going to win this thing it's just a question of when, and that NATO wants a war so that they can cripple and hobble Russia, which will leave China without a key energy exporter to assist them. In the end, this really comes down to energy and, and China. Well, and I also think it comes down to looking the other way. Um, you, know, I, and, you know, war is always a great way for Democrats to win elections. It always has been. Um, and I'm not disagreeing with you that NATO, at least NATO and probably the U.S., they want war. Um, Sorry, Greg, you're um, coming a little soft. Can you speak up? Hmm. Okay. That's shocking. I came in soft. Um, and, you know, the war is the they want. I think the Democrats want war in order to win the next election because they can't do it on any other platform. And uh, you know, so I agree with you that they really want to fight a war which I don't understand because we don't have the industrial infrastructure we used to. We're not capable of fighting wars on two fronts, which is what we're going to be talking about. Very well said. Um, I think we're going to take one more caller uh, in Lamp. I think we're going to start wrapping up. Um, Lance, go ahead. Yeah, if it's the last call, so briefly, right? So can you guys try to help me wrap my head around this? So, you know, uh, we've ebbed and flowed religious-wise, right? So, oh, you know, so Europe, very religious for a long time, right? The clergy ran stuff. That was like a thousand years into their history. So, so you know, we're a very young country, a few hundred years old. Right? But, you know, half our colonies were theocracies, right? They didn't want tolerance except for William Penn. All right, that's in our DNA. Right. We've kind of been isolationist because we're a strong country. We're, you know, other than Canada and Mexico, we took, you know, the Monroe Doctrine. So we've never been really invaded much. So we've had an isolationist mentality. Even our founders, aristocrats, assholes that you might want to call them, they weren't thinking too much about uh, an empire other than the Western Hemisphere. And they, you know, they, 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 they weren't into the big army thing. They really didn't work sure about a standing army. So it's just, and that was Vietnam. Everything since World War II, we haven't been invaded by so much as a mouse directly on our shores. We all know, right? Historically, right? Vietnam and uh, Iraq war, Korea, all garbage. How? And I know propaganda, World War One. we're talking about, you know, with Wilson, they rounded people up in a way that they're not going to people's houses that it's as bad as things are and being censored on Twitter and all that. They're not to, so far just rounding like scores and scores of journalists up, you know, like it was a big deal that that one journalist got arrested for a few minutes for doing his job. All right. So it was way worse. And so considering all that, how? What the heck happened? Because it's not like it's in our DNA to be just so pro-war right on top of Afghanistan and Iraq. It's like, how can we be so stupid? Putin was our guy, just like Saddam Hussein was our guy, the handshake with, with Rumsfeld. Putin was our guy because he was post-communist. He was going to be a capitalist. So can you help me, help me wrap my head around it? I get all the propaganda stuff and the press, but isn't it in our DNA to just be skeptical after all the recent shit and shit we know of our history? That, that is just bullshit? How do we not see through? I wish. Um, I think it is 
hopefully in our DNA to not want to kill other human beings. I forgot who said this, but we don't want to kill other people. We have to be tricked into doing it, usually through emotional appeals and us versus them and Manichaeism. Like, I think a lot of these people believe that they're in this ultimate fight between good and evil. And Ukraine is this bastion of democracy, which is patently false. And uh, we're, we're fighting for, for freedom, which sounds a lot like Woodrow Wilson making the world safe for democracy. And we see what happened to that, but not the best person to talk about the religious aspect, I guess. I'm a student of John Keel, a fan of the ultra dimensional theory, and I guess a pagan when it really comes down to it. But yeah, I think you make a good point here. I just think that people are easily led and it really will be like the five, 10%, like in World War One. like at first it was like really unpopular, but it really came down to it. Um, it was a really sp- small percentage of people, I think, that were outright against the war, were willing to fight to, for it. I mean, I've, I've been saying this on Twitter a lot to not great avail, but I think that the people that were against it, like you see all these boomers out there that uh, I'm a millennial, by the way, so no offense, but the people that lived in the 60s and 70s, like, uh, a lot of them have Ukraine bio or Ukraine flags in their bio now. And I think a lot of it, a lot of the cases because it was cool to be anti-war back then and they weren't really doing it because it was the right thing to do. They were trying to get laid. Whereas like being against this Ukraine escalation is incredibly socially unpopular and it really gets you ostracized and it gives you called some really bad names. Like I can, I can say that um, personally and uh, it takes a lot of courage to truly be anti-war. No, I'm just saying, yeah, it is insane. Uh, because like you're saying about like in the 60s and being anti-war, it was about 50-50, the populace. Overall, it was about 50-50 in the polls. Even in 68, the peak of the anti-war movement. Now it's like probably 60-40, maybe two-thirds of the populace is against the war. So it's only these elites. And this is why, so, oh, my God, they're just so far removed from any reality. These are the dumbest people in our country. In other words, knowledge and wisdom are two different things. But the wisdom, the wisdom of someone on welfare for everything that lives in the inner city, the wisdom of a lower middle class, working class people, the wisdom of whatever's left of factory workers is so far beyond what these idiots who could have IQs that are high and postgraduate degrees, but they have no wisdom. I don't care how much knowledge they have. They're just dumb. They really are as dumb as they sound. Just incredible. The people are against the war and they're just perpetuating it. The, 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 The elite press and the elite, you know, are just being talking points to because they got to have a career, man. There's no risk taking. They were never taught to take any risk. So a journalist used to have to buck the system. Seymour Hirsch. Hello. I'll, I'll stop with this. Right. Seymour Hirsch has been the crank conspiracy theorist for like like 50, 60 years, six decades. They've been calling him as conspiracy theorist and he's never had a lawsuit. And he's always right. And sometimes he'll opine. But when he opines, he says, here's my receipts. I can't draw the conclusion. But here's what I think. So he's not afraid to to, to be an, an analyst. But he's never had a lawsuit. He doesn't ever lose a libel suit. Oh, there's Seymour Hearst, another conspiracy theory. Yeah, conspiracy theories that were 100% true every single freaking time. It's like, it's crazy, these people. I don't know where, who they think they're fooling. It's well, Lance, what you're saying about Seymour Hersh, it reminds me of a great political cartoon I saw uh, in the late spring, once the, the Ukraine war was about three months in. And it was a cow standing on, you know, a pasture where the other cows, you know, the beef cows were. Uh, the, and there's a processing plant, a butchery, in the, in the background. And he's pointing at it. He's standing on a soapbox and pointing at the butchery. And he says... They're going to send us there. That's the, they're not sending us to heaven. They're sending us to the butchery. And then you see all the cows surrounding him saying, there he goes again, that conspiracy theorist. But I think to go back to your point about why we tolerate this, well, I think this is the libertarian position, uh, or at least a libertarian observation, because we don't speak for the party here. Um, and, and that is, what do you think happens to the critical thinking skills of the working class and the lower classes, the people who fight the wars, when their schools and their policies are completely controlled at the macro level, at the state level and the federal level, 
by the oligarchical class. They're going to educate you and re-educate you to fight against your own interests. That's that's my interpretation of why people. I don't I, I don't even want to say gullible because that's I don't want to insult folks who have been duped on this. But at the same time, we have to acknowledge there's been a concerted effort on on the oligarchical class in America to dumb down public education in our schools. I mean, very well said, Matt. Pedro, do you have any thoughts you want to have before we start wrapping up? Uh, no, I just want to thank you again for inviting me as a guest and uh, hope we can do this more times in the future. I hope next week Andrew and Fahim will join us. That's all. Thanks. Yeah, I really appreciate that. And uh, thank you, Lance. Really appreciate the contributions there. Uh, we're going to have another podcast uh, next Friday at 5 p.m. Uh, I do need to wrap up here just because I have another thing I need to get to, but would love you to, to join us and would love to have you on again. So I guess real quick, I'll just say that, uh, yeah, I mean, honestly, it's hard to say, right? I don't think that NATO really wants a hot war with Russia. I think it, it, it makes me think of a meme that I've been meaning to make, but just haven't yet, uh, of the like the blonde woman with like the beakers and all the, the symbols and stuff behind her. And it's like NATO trying to calculate the perfect amount of weapons that they could pour into the situation to bleed Russia dry without causing a direct conflict. That really is what it feels like. But we've seen this happen a number of times, right? That's exactly what people thought they could do in World War I. They thought they, they could just get their peace. They thought they could just make what they wanted to get, get that colony from that power and diminish them. And next thing you knew, 40 million people were dead. So, and I guess in World War II, even more. We just saw the same thing repeat over again. So uh, to close out, uh, I'm going to talk about, just real quick, the Rage Against the War Machine rally is happening on February 19 in Washington, D.C., um, my homework from last week from our friend Andrew, who wasn't able to make it uh, this week, is to talk about some of the sister rallies that are happening uh, at the same time um, or close to it. So on February 17, there is going to be a rally in Corvallis, Oregon. Um, and all of this, by the way, is available on RageAgainstWar.com slash rallies. Uh, there's also going to be another event in Ann Arbor, Michigan, uh, where I'm from, uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan, but close by, on February 17 as well. There's another event in Los Angeles on February 18. Uh, there's going to be another event on February 19 in Milwaukee. And I guess there's going to be a watch party there for the DC event. Um, another event in Bath, Maine, looks like, on the 19th. San Francisco, Santa Cruz, and Tacoma. And of course, the event that I will be probably speaking at, I had not confirmed there, but I'll definitely be there in attendance along with some of the other Oregon Mises Caucus folks, um, is going to be in Seattle. Uh, organized by the uh, Washington Mises Caucus and um, a Julian Assange group and uh, maybe Socialist Alliance, I think, is going to be there, too. Um, so, yeah, uh, Rage Against the War Machine. Um, definitely support this event, despite all the controversy it's had lately. Don't support all the speakers that are there, uh, for sure, but uh, definitely support the event. I'm happy that the People's Party and the Libertarian Party were able to come together on really the most important of all issues. So, uh, Pedro, looks like you had something there if you want to bring us out. Yeah, I just want to add that about DC and the war rally. So, Max Blumenthal is going to be there and uh, Sabi Sabs, also a list of speakers that we went through last uh, week. I just want to add that there's a bit of drama right now because some people are withdrawing, like Medea Benjamin. Medea Benjamin is a part of our organization called Code Pink. And for reasons unknown, she would withdraw from the list. Uh, we are trying to find about why Max Blumenthal told her that she won't talk to her about that because they both live in DC, right? Uh, and also Scott Ritter just withdrew for reasons unknown. People say that that's because Jackson Engel or other people that are accused of being rapists or something like that. I really don't know. <laughs> so I just want to say that. That's all. I don't know if Peter, if you have more inside information that you want to have about that. I think I think it was the Libertarian Party that has a problem with Scott Ritter, from what I understand. Do you have any inside knowledge about that, Peter? I don't want to go into the full details on it, but yeah, there were a lot of people in the Libertarian Party that did not want Scott Ritter to speak, um, especially due to his recent comments on Twitter uh, saying that he wasn't anti-war and. Uh, a lot of other like 
pretty fiery things. Like I understand Scott Ritter's done a lot of great work in the past on Afghanistan, Iraq, and other places. And maybe in a future podcast, we could talk about it. But honestly, I'm pretty happy to hear that he's pulled out. And I hope that everyone that was upset about him going will maybe go now. And the people that were upset about him pulling out will realize how important it is. Uh, yeah, uh, so I look forward to to talk about Scott Ritter in a future episode because I I uh, I kind of uh, he's he's an analyst, right? He's a he's an ex ex marine intelligence officer, so he knows about uh, matters of war and peace and conflict. So I think we at, le- at least should listen what he has to say if it, if it's true information, right? So that's all I have to say. So looking forward to talk with you more on that another episode. Yeah, we could definitely talk about that in another episode. Like, I don't know all the details about the, the Ritter thing, but I, I just know that it was causing a lot of controversy. So anyways, um, thank you for joining us, everyone. Been another great episode of Foreign Policy Fridays. Uh, Pedro, I think you've been on every episode. So uh, you Yes, are, like, yes. I'm a big fan of this. Uh, I'm oh, really sorry. having a good time being here. You know, I like this is my issues that I like to talk about. So thanks for inviting me. Anytime, friend. Well. Everybody uh, have a great weekend, and as Will Hobson would say, uh, cheers.